Father, thank you that this book speaks so powerfully and so wonderfully of your grace to us. Thank you for the journey that we have been on together over the last year and a half. And today, as we reflect on the lessons birthed within this book, we pray that we would take the truths that you've emblazoned upon our heart through this journey and help us to be people who are different because of spending time in this book called Exodus. So, Lord, come now and bring to remembrance things that we need to reflect on, things we need to celebrate, and then truths that we need to anchor even deeper in our souls. So help us today, Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, in your name. Amen. My grandparents had a uh, tradition. My grandparents on my mother's side had a tradition that whenever we would um, say goodbye, they had a particular regimen that they kind of went through after we were visiting their house. Uh, we would we would say our first goodbye in the house. We'd hug them, kiss them, tell them we loved them. And then my dad would back the car out of the driveway. And as he made the turn to be able to go down Montrose Avenue, there to our right in the front room window with the dra- drapes pulled back were always Grandma and Grandpa Maluk. They were standing there with their arms around each other, and they were waving. And my parents always told us, wave to Grandma, wave to Grandpa. And I always thought, this is ridiculous. We already just said goodbye. You know, it's like, what was that about? And this about it. It's twice. And sometimes I'd be like, and they'd like, wave to Grandma. I'm like, all right, all right. So we would wave. And I had this image burned in my mind, and I get it now as an adult, and I got it when I was a kid as well. Just sometimes I was just a little bit rebellious. So uh, I, I saw them. I had this image of them standing there in that window waving goodbye to us. Their, their house was a lot of fun. Not because it was filled with all the new toys. I mean, they, they didn't have any of the newfangled toys. It actually was because they had a bunch of old things that were still fun to play with. Grandfather had an old model train, had woodworking stuff down in the shop, you know, stuff that my dad wouldn't let me play with. I could play at Grandpa's house, you know, that's what Grandpas are for. And uh, had this, um, this, this old typewriter with the, with the hammer hands that struck a black-blue ribbon. My grandfather was an accountant, so he had a, a accounting machine that actually had a crank on it that did adding and subtracting. And then there was this old swing down in the basement that was really old and really unsafe, and it was really fun as he swing back and forth. So when you go to their home, part of the joy was playing with old things. It was like the old things, part of my own family's history, part of my mom's history was there right in front of me, and I could enjoy playing with that bit of history. And so saying goodbye to them meant saying goodbye to that kind of history. And today that's kind of how I feel. We're closing up the book of Exodus, putting away some things that have been really fun to look at, things that have been fun to play with, so to speak, to examine, things that have brought an element of history to us. Since September, we've been studying the book of Exodus, and today we're going to bring that to a close. And we've looked at this amazing historical book, and we've learned some wonderful things about God's plan of redemption. We've seen the gospel in its foundational form in this Old Testament book, and we have seen the way that God has dealt with Israel, and it also reminds us of the way that he has dealt with us. Part of the joy of this journey has been the the ability to see the big picture story, to be able to see what God is doing from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and you get a picture of that very clearly. 
in the book of Exodus. So it's been a great journey together. Uh, some of you have asked, so what's next? What are we, um, what are we studying next? And I, I love that you asked that question. It tells me that you've got um, some hunger for uh, the scriptures and are interested in where we're going. So let me just give you an overview of what the next couple months and then next year will look like. Beginning next week, we begin what is probably the most important focal point of the entire year with our Missions Emphasis Month. We're going to take next week, Pastor Nate will be bringing a, a, a challenge to us from God's Word about what it means for us to embrace a mindset of it's time for that. That phrase is in reference to the fact that when we built this building and this addition with the Mission Expansion Project, a number of people said, how can we spend this much money on a building when we have people who have never heard the gospel? And the answer to that, which is a really good question, the answer is this is for that. In fact, since our church has grown over the last five years, we're now able to give over $1.2 million more to mission today than what we were able to do five years ago because there's more people, there's more money, there's more mobilization for the cause of global evangelism. So Nate's going to help us understand why it's time for that. And then the week after that, I'll talk a little bit about um, divine appointments from Acts chapter 10. And then Dr. Joel Stoll from Cornerstone University will be here as, uh, as our guest, challenging us as well. Then we're going to go into three weeks and talk about a core value of ours called extravagant grace. It's one of the things that makes College Park really unique, and it's also one of our values that are, is easy to lose. And so we're going to talk about extravagant grace in the gospel, in our lives, and then in the church. I want you to really get a sense of what it means to live out gospel-centered extravagant grace in our community. During the Advent season, we're going to take the um, Christmas musical, and we're doing it on Friday and Saturday. Not doing it on Sunday, just Friday and Saturday, and we're redesigning that so that it's very specifically targeted as an attractional evangelistic event. And so uh, we want to encourage you to be thinking even now about who you might invite to uh, uh, that event on Friday and Saturday. And then uh, that following Sunday will begin the Advent season. And we're going to be walking through the hymn, Come Thou Long Expectant Jesus. Each one of those lines has incredible theology in it. And we're going to talk along with a text that correlates to those lines of that hymn about um, what it means for Jesus to have come. So you might ask, okay, so that's great. So what's the next book? What's, what's after Exodus? And so beginning in January, we're going to begin a study of the book of Romans. Never preached the book of Romans before, and I don't know that I'm ready, but it's going to come. And so here we go, okay? Um, I have no idea how long it's going to take us. Uh, my um, hero, um, pastoral hero, is Martin Lloyd-Jones. It took him 13 years. Um, so... <laughs> we're going to try and do a little shorter than that, just, just, uh, just a bit. Um, but I'm really looking forward to this uh, study as we just dive into a very, very important book as it relates to the righteousness of God mediated through the person and work of Christ. So we're going to learn some great things together. So that's where we're headed over the next three months, and I hope that you um, come ready and expectant to be able to meet with God every single Sunday. Now, back to Exodus. From the very beginning of our study of this book, I've tried to make the point that this book is not about Israel or Moses or Pharaoh or Egypt, that this book is about God. From the very beginning of Exodus chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 40, Exodus is a revelation, a self-disclosure of what God is like. For that matter, that's not anything different than the rest of the entire Bible. All of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, essentially is about the manifold display of God revealing himself. Even the way in which he has revealed himself to you in the gospel, if you're a follower of Jesus, the, the moment that you receive Christ, the fact that you've received God's grace, it's not about you. It is about the display of God's glory in your life. 
And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, one of the beautiful things that happens when you turn from your sin and receive Christ is suddenly now your life is a new purpose and a new meaning, and it is to platform the glory of God in your life. That's what you saw in baptism, what you heard as we let out the service, um, in terms of the, the testimony that was given. See, God's aim is to glorify and magnify himself, and this is the theme of the entire Bible. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Say amen to that. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, that's an important phrase. This reference is the reason why what has just been said. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So why did you receive Christ? It is so that you might display the eminent glory of God in and through your life. So Genesis to Revelation is all about this compelling story of God rescuing people so that his majesty and his power might be known. So I divided the book of Exodus up into five different sections, or six sections rather, each of them relating to a particular aspect of God that we see in this book. So let me just walk you through each of those sections and remind you some of the things that we learned. Here's the first. We learned in Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 6 that God is a God who hears. The beginning of Exodus shows us the sad state of Israel in the midst of their suffering under the weight of bondage as they are slaves in Egypt. Take your Bible, go over to Exodus chapter 2 and look at verses 23 to 25. The text tells us of the setting of Israel and their difficulty Long gone were the days of Joseph and his fame and lore in Egypt. Now they are slaves. And verse 23 of chapter 2 says this, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then this is my favorite. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Isn't that great? This book starts out with the fact that the people of Israel are in a hard place. They're suffering under the weight of slavery. And God hears. And God knows. I hope one of the things that you've walked away with our study of Exodus is to know that God hears you. He knows you're groaning. He knows the pain. Nothing is taken in by surprise. And even in those dark moments when you wonder, God, where in the world are you? And you cry out to him. He is listening. He is hearing. God hears. He knows. God's deliverance of Israel is going to come through a man named Moses. He was spared as a baby the genocide that Pharaoh tried to enact. He was hidden in the Nile, adopted into Pharaoh's family, raised in the household of Pharaoh, saw himself, though, as an Israelite, tried to take on himself the the manifestation of the Redeemer of Israel. He killed an Egyptian slave master and, as a result, had to flee into Midian. And while in Midian, he encounters the burning bush where God says, take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. And it's there in Exodus chapter 6 that God reveals himself to Moses and then tells him what he is going to do. Again, take your Bible, look at Exodus chapter 6, look at verses 1 to 8. Great summary here in Exodus 6 of God's heart and Moses' role. And we also see 
the supremacy of God highlighted. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slave, from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That shows up again at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You see, this book is not about Israel. It's not about Moses. It is about God. He is a God who remembers his covenant. He is a God who hears. Secondly, we saw that God is a God who delivers Chapters 7 to 12, we see that God delivers his people with a mighty hand out of Egypt. Now, God is going to rescue his people from their slavery, but he is going in doing so to make a strong statement about his supremacy. His supremacy over Pharaoh and Egypt and their so-called gods. Pharaoh has even been brought to power for this very purpose, that God is going to display his supremacy over everything, and that is why Pharaoh is even on the planet And God will use the ten plagues to target the gods of the Egyptians. Look at Exodus chapter 7 and verse 1. Exodus 7, 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, and you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel among them. So the battle between God and Pharaoh is not just a matter of of redeeming Israel, of taking them out. It is a matter of God telling Pharaoh what his place is on the earth. The ten plagues are not just the means by which deliverance comes. It is the methodology by which God says these so-called gods of Egypt are nothing. In fact, I'll use your own gods against you. And in the killing of the firstborn... We have the plague of all plagues. Judgment comes upon the people. And it was only because of the blood that was spread in the doorposts that saved the house of Israel, the people who were inside that home at the time of that judgment. And this traumatic judgment, this traumatic salvation by the covering of blood becomes the most important celebration in Israel's calendar And it becomes a harbinger of what will happen in the New Testament when during the very feast of that Passover, a lamb was not slain, but Jesus was slain, whose blood makes it possible for the judgment of sin to pass over those who are hidden in the house called Christ. 
It's beautiful. Beautiful. God is a God who delivers. Next. Saw that God is a God who provides. So, deliverance from slavery was only part of Israel's story. And only part of their relationship with God. Life outside of Egypt was not safe, and the people needed to learn how to trust in God, how to trust Him in the big things, and how to trust Him in the little things. And don't you and I need to learn that as well? Trust Him in the big things, and to trust Him in the little things. In the case of the Red Sea, it's a big thing. They're they're stuck between the Red Sea and the approaching army of Pharaoh. And as is so common with human beings, no matter how big the deliverance has been in the past, no matter how greatly God has worked, when there's a threat right in front of you, we tend to panic. And that's exactly what Israel did. And they get all on to to Moses and they accuse him of having questionable motives. They, They say crazy and silly and even stupid things like, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? And they say just ridiculous things, things that frankly, if I was Moses... Something like this would have come out of my mouth. Yeah, that's why, because there's no grace. Whatever, you know. <laughs> Aaron, take care of these people. I'm out. You know, tap out. I'm gone. So, gratefully, Moses stays in the fight. And Exodus 14, he says this to the, to the people. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. I love this verse. Fear not and stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Oh, how many times in my lifetime I've quoted, preached that verse to my own soul. Some of you need to hear it even this morning because you're, you're stuck in one of those impossible Red Sea moments and you need to hear the Word of God to your soul today. Fear not, stand firm, and watch what God is going to do. So we have a Red Sea moment. Red Sea happens, Pharaoh's army is destroyed, and you think with all of this that us human beings would just find it really easy to trust the Lord. But when we get hungry bellies and thirsty mouths, we tend to panic. So Israel suddenly doesn't need God just to deliver from them from a big thing. They need bread and they need meat and they need water. And God provides manna from heaven, this, this beautiful image of every morning when they would wake up, there would be fresh bread available to them. And if they stored it overnight trying to take care of themselves, it got rotten and full of worms. The idea was is you can't take care of yourself. You've got to go to bed with no manna, hoping that tomorrow morning, believing in faith, there's going to be new manna. There's going to be daily bread available to you, which is why Jesus prayed, give us this day our daily bread. The idea is that every single day you're trusting God for his provision But it also meant that on the Sabbath day, when it wasn't going to rain manna from heaven, that God miraculously preserved their manna in a 48-hour increment, when on the other days it wouldn't be preserved. And so they learned that every single day that they live, they can trust God that he's got them, not only for the big moments, but also for the micro moments. That God has you in the midst of huge crises, and also in the micro crises of life. And then they get thirsty. They grumble, they complain, they're mad at God. And so Moses strikes the rock, which in the New Testament becomes a figure of Christ, that because of their sinful complaining and their lack of trust, they strike the rock, and out of the rock comes the water that gives them the life and sustenance that they need. God is a God who will provide. So he's the God who hears, he's the God who delivers, he's the God who provides. Every day he's able to give us our daily bread. Some of you, you're here today and you just need to be reminded that 
The same God who delivered you is the same God who can take care of a big thing in your life. He's the same God who can take care of your small, little, incremental needs. He's worthy to be trusted. And by the way, most of us struggle with one of those two areas, and sometimes both. But most of us struggle either with the really big crises, like, I don't know, or some of us just are filled with anxiety every single day about all the little things. And the key is to take the book of Exodus and realize that if God showed up in your deliverance, he's going to show up in the big things and the little things. So just keep trusting. And keep believing that the one who delivered you will also keep you trusting. And then we saw the God who commands. Not only does God provide, but he also commands. The people are led to the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And they are led there for a very important lesson. In fact, I would argue it may be the most important lesson in the book of Exodus, and is a lesson that you need to learn if you're even going to have a relationship with Christ, and it's the lesson that sounds like this. God likes you, but he is not like you. At the base of the mountain, the people see the the, the, the fire and the smoke and the thundering. God is there. He's a compassionate God. He's just delivered them out of Egypt. He's not angry, but he is not like them. He's different. And the reason that God not being like us is important is because from God not being like us flows his ability to give commands. The reason that God can define the boundaries of morality, the reason he can say you shall not commit adultery, the reason he can say that you shall not steal, you shall not murder, the reason that God can say all of those things is because he is not God. And any attempt to circumvent his rules, his laws, is in effect to say, I don't really think that you're not that much like me. So Exodus 19 is really important. In fact, Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, it starts like this. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, I am who I am, and that's why I can command what I command. Listen to Exodus 19 and verse 16. It says this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly and at the sound, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. In other words, the point of Exodus 19 is this God who commands is not like you. What flows from that then is the Ten Commandments. And then all the other commands connected to those Ten Commandments, like in chapters 21, 22, and 23, where God continues to unfold His glory and His holiness and shows His people how He wants them to act. In other words, God likes you, He's not like you, but you must be like Him. That's the point. That's the whole purpose of the law, is to show you what it means to be like Him. So God is a God who hears He's a God who delivers, a God who provides, a God who commands. Next, we see God as a God who is holy. His holiness is expressed through worship. 
The people of Israel are to meet regularly and to be reminded who God is, and they're to be reminded of that by virtue of their corporate gathering for worship. This is one of the most fascinating aspects of Exodus that I didn't realize before going into this book, and in fact was one of the most intimidating as I outlined the book, because there's so much detail that at first, when I looked at it, I was like, this stuff is boring what what are we going to do for six weeks talking about yarn and thread and linens and gold? I was like, yawn, what am I going to do? And yet it's glorious. When you dig into it, you understand that the reason for all of that detail, almost half of the book of Exodus is about all of that detail. Why is there so much detail like that? Because this is, here's why, because worship is that important. The corporate gathering of God's people to be reminded that in the midst of a broken and fallen world that there is peace in God's presence, to be reminded of his transcendence, his otherness, to to, to see and behold his beauty, to be near his glory and to realize who you are. That is the essence of what God wants people to know. It's the reason why we have gathered on Sunday here to be reminded what life is really about, what God really is, what he requires and who we need to be. That worship resets our orientation to life because God is a God who is holy. The central piece of his otherness is connected to the Ark of the Covenant. This box that contained the Ten Commandments and was covered with a gold plate became the mercy seat. On top of that mercy seat were cherubim. And between the cherubim is where God met with his people. So the presence of God is mediated to the the tabernacle court and the tabernacle proper and the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the place where God would speak with the people of Israel. This is what God said to Moses in Exodus 25. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark. And in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And once a year, the high priest would go in with blood and he would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. And that was the atonement for the people of Israel for another year. And in this beautiful picture of God's glory, his majesty and blood atonement, we see the harbinger of what is to come in the New Testament testament of jesus who at his death the curtain of the holy of holies is rent in two and by the shedding of his blood he opens up the presence of god to those who would put their faith in him we see in the old testament a picture of what comes in full blossom in the person and work of jesus at calvary you can't help but see this and see you can see the gospel you can see christ you can see the beauty of redemption that there is a god a god who is holy And yet the crazy thing is, despite what the people know about God's authority, despite what they know about His holiness, it only takes 40 days. And in their fear of Moses being gone, they fall into the age-old trap of idolatry and immorality. And I told you months ago that those two things always go together. The golden calf incident took place. There was judgment. It's a terrible failure. And yet God, after administering the judgment that they deserved, invites the people to a new relationship with him, invites Moses to come back up the mountain, and he gives the people a second chance. God is a God who is holy. And then finally, the last section that we just completed, the God who is near. God's purpose in rescuing his people from Egypt was so that they could be his people and he would be their God. God's aim was to use Israel to platform his glory. 
part of that display of his glory was Moses' face. When God would meet with Moses, Moses' face would be aglow. But what also happened to Moses happened to the tabernacle. After the people had done it exactly, had constructed it exactly as the Lord had commanded, the cloud came down from the mountain. This, this glorious and threatening and powerful cloud comes down and it moves right in the middle of their camp. Right in the middle of their encampment. And the scripture tells us that the cloud encompassed that tabernacle and the glory of God filled that tabernacle. Chapter 40 and verse 34 says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled that tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was that the God who had heard them The God who had delivered them, the God who had provided for them, the God who had commanded the law to them, the God who was holy is now the God who was right in the middle of our camp. The text says throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. And this is how the book of Exodus ends. Leviticus picks it up. The second volume records all the laws and Israel has a long way to go to the promised land and there'll be lots of huge failures along the way and all sorts of lessons. It'll be a long journey before they get there. But Exodus's snapshot of the people of Israel is this. They were enslaved. They had no hope. God remembered his covenant. He delivered them. He gave them his law. He is a holy God and he is right in the midst of them, and that's the way they lived, God in the midst of his people. It is a glorious display of God's glory. This book shows us God, a God who hears, a God who delivers, who provides, a God who commands, a God who is holy, and a God who is near. Now, This book has had all sorts of lessons for us. We could spend a lot of time talking about all of the things that we've learned. Let me just highlight a few of what I think are the most important. As we wrap up this book, what do I want you to remember? Here's the first. College Park, remember that God is supreme. You can't read the book of Exodus without seeing a very clear picture of God's supremacy over everything and anything. He has no equals, no challengers. Gods that people think are gods are ridiculous. He turns them and uses them against people for judgment. He is an unstoppable, merciful, holy, righteous creator. The demand to let him go... Let his people go to Pharaoh, the the back and forth, the arguing with Pharaoh, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the scene on the mountain. They're all designed to send a very important and clear message about God's supremacy over all things. This book, this book of Exodus, has been a great reminder that the central message of the Bible, not just Exodus, is about God's victory over everything and anything that challenges his authority. Genesis to Revelation, this book is about the supremacy of God over all things, including sin and Satan and death. 
There is coming a day when God will declare victory over all those things. Jesus has inaugurated that victory, but there is coming a day when that victory will be complete and final. And the book of Exodus shows us clearly that there's nothing in all of the universe that holds a candle to the supremacy of Yahweh God. He is supreme. That's what this book tells us. Secondly, this book shows us that redemption is amazing to behold. One of the reasons why I've loved studying this book is because as you look into Exodus, you see the foundation of the redemptive plan, and then you can see it, you can trace it as it blossoms in the New Testament. Sometimes it's clear and evident as an Old Testament writer is picked up by a New Testament writer. Sometimes you can just see it in the imagery. To look at the slavery and the deliverance brings to mind Romans chapter 6 and our deliverance from the slavery of sin. To see the protection of the blood on the doorpost brings us to the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of a lamb in the Passover just declares the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus at the hill called Calvary. It is a beautiful lens of the gospel. You can look at, at the book of Exodus to be able to see The book of Exodus, through this perspective, is amazing. As you read the book of Exodus, you can't help but fall in love with the plan of God as you see in part in Exodus, and then you see it in full in the person and work of Jesus. It's no wonder that the writer of Hebrews says that these things are a copy and shadow of heavenly things. In other words, the book of Exodus is a shadow It's just a shadow of what the real substance is. Oh, granted, Exodus and and Moses and everything that happened was real, but it's not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is Christ and Him crucified. It's, It's that God has come to rescue His people, not from the slavery of Egypt, but to come to rescue us from the slavery of sin. The beautiful thing about Exodus is that you see grace, but you also see yourself. You hear the Israelites complaining and you know that you've complained. You see their fear and you know you've been there. And yet God still has given you a second chance and loved you and called you to be his own when you were hopeless and helpless without him. That's why if you're here today and you're at a dead end, you've got something so big, so huge in your life, you don't know where to go. You came to the perfect place today because we serve and love and worship a God who has answers when your life falls apart. Third, This is a new one that I didn't expect. I should have, but I didn't. That worship and obedience matter. I mean, you know this, and I know this, but as we've walked through the intricate detail of the tabernacle, it struck me that worship in the place of the life of Israel and obedience in the life of Israel was incredibly important to their relationship with their God. Oh, belief starts that relationship, but worship and obedience are critical to that relationship. Belief moves us into God's family, but worship and obedience are the things that express our allegiance. Or, as we said a few Sundays ago, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. To be able to express our love and our affirmation of our relationship with our Creator through obedience, or to be able to gather every week together and to be reminded what life is really all about to be reminded who God is and who we are. Friends, we need this day. You need this day to be reminded what life is all about and what has really happened to your sin. You need to be reminded as to who God is and who's really in control of the universe. 
You need to take your anxieties and your fears and your sins and bring them into this room and then leave them as you walk out because this God who we serve is still supreme and we need to worship Him not just for His glory but for our own good. Fourth, Exodus reminds us that God can be trusted. As we walk through this book, it is clear that God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy for our trust in the big crisis moments, and he's also worthy of our trust in those daily bread moments. He's worthy of our trust when it feels as though life has fallen apart, and he's worthy of our trust when we just have little glimpses of anxiety and fear, and we wonder, God, what's going to happen here? And God is worthy to be trusted in manna, and he's worthy to be trusted when you're crossing the Red Sea. I found my heart greatly challenged in this book to take the long view. And there have been moments in the last year and a half where I have needed to preach that truth to my own heart. Mark, take the long view. Don't let suffering or hardship or difficulties create within you a grumbling or faint-heartedness. Remember, the same God who showed up in Exodus is the same God who's on the throne today. It's good to be reminded that Jesus prayed, give us this day our daily bread, because he knew about daily manna, and he knew about God's ability to be trusted, and he himself had to trust in God and encourages us to do the same, and in fact, in this very moment, prays that we would keep trusting the one who keeps us trusting. And then finally, and I think this might be the most important lesson of all, and that is this, that God keeps his promises. 400 years they were in slavery. They must have thought generation after generation, God has forgotten about us. He doesn't know what's happening to us. What happened to God's covenant? What happened to his promises? And then Exodus comes. And Exodus 2.23 says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. God heard God saw and God knew. No doubt that there were dark and difficult days on the backside of God's will, wondering, God, have you forgotten about us? They were trapped in what seemed like a hopeless situation, and yet God remembered his covenant. He remembered his promises. And the fact that God kept his promises is really important because that is what you place your faith in when you receive Christ. You place your faith in the belief that when I die, if I've received Christ, you're going to count Christ's death as sufficient for me. And when I stand before you and he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? The answer is not because of me, but because you promised. You promised that if I put my faith in your son, that his death would count for me. And I am banking my eternal destiny on that promise. And then for the rest of your life, every single day when it feels as though everything has fallen apart and you wonder who's really in control and is the devil really winning and is my sin really ever truly forgiven, you bank your life every single day on the promises of God. When cancer comes or kids are killed in an accident or terrible sins happen in people's lives and you wonder what in the world is going on, that's when you anchor your heart to this truth that the same God of Exodus is the same God who's in control today and he always keeps his word, he is always faithful, that he is a God who hears, he's a God who knows, he's a God who delivers, and he is a God who is going to come to rescue us from the brokenness of this world. And so we anchor our hope in that very 
promise that even when we walk to the valley of the shadow of death, even then he is still with us. And there is coming a day when Jesus will make all things new, when God will be with us and we will be his people. And until that day, we cling to the promises of the scriptures rooted in exodus and birth in full blossom in the person and work of Jesus. What we're going to do to celebrate this, these, this reality today is we're going to sing at the end. We're going to sing the song, Never Once Did We Ever Walk Alone. I'm going to open up the front of the sanctuary this morning, and there's two groups of people that I would love as we're, when we stand to have you come here. There's some of you that in this book God has met with you, and you need to come forward this morning just to kneel here, kneel here and worship, in effect saying, God, never once did you ever leave me alone. And I have seen that in the darkest of dark moments in the last year and a half. And I just want to come and kneel today and just sing this song to you and say, God, yes, you are faithful to your promises. And there are others of you, you are in the middle of a valley. You know how you'd love to see the other end, but right now you are in the thick of it. And today you need to come anchoring your heart on the truth and the reality that God I believe your promise, and I'm not going to let go. I'm going to keep trusting you, even though it gets really dark and really hard, because you are indeed faithful. Whether you're down here in the bowl or up on the stadium, we're going to sing, and you come and just kneel. Some of you are just not comfortable with that. That's fine. You can stand right where you are and do the same thing and sing. But there's some of you who I know you just need to come today and say, God, here I am, and I want to thank you, and I want to believe that I'm never going to walk alone. Let's stand together. Father, would you help us now as we worship, as we sing, as we call upon you as our God and our creator, the God who delivered his people from the torment of Pharaoh. God, we want to confess our belief that you never, ever leave us. So hear our worship today and encourage our hearts as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.